0: Welcome to the KHQ Family and Relationship Law Podcast. My name is Monica Blizzard and today I have two of my esteemed colleagues, Greg Oliver and Stefan Pantalis, joining me. Welcome, guys.
1: Hi, folks. Hi, Mon. Hi, Steph. Hi. Uh-huh. Thanks for having us.
0: So today I wanted to talk about a topic that you both know is a real passion of mine. Uh, I probably shouldn't describe it as a passion, but something I am very passionate about, and that's family violence. Um, I think when you work in family law, you come into contact Mm -hmm. With family violence on almost a daily basis, Um, and you both know that one of the earliest experiences of my career was um, when a client I was acting for a female client who was murdered by her estranged spouse and that's really sort of shaped my career and I think my passion in this area. Um, I do think about that case, I think, almost every day and and ask if there was anything I could have done to change what happened. Um, And in that case, it's really relevant to this topic because there was no evidence of physical violence. Um, She she told me she was not in fear of her husband. So I often think, what more could I have done? But looking back now, um, I think there really would have been evidence of coercive controlling behaviour. And that's the topic we wanted to talk about today. Um, What is coercive control? Um, Should it be criminalised? How do you identify it? How would it impact a family law case? So all of those um, things are really up for discussion today. Mm Hannah Clarke I think guys is the most um, haunting example we have of a coercive controlling case which led to the death of Hannah and her beautiful young children Um, and in that case um, I think it was just so pivotal that there was no example of physical violence so the traditional definition of violence tends to be about bruises and bumps and broken bones but coercive control is is entirely in many ways the opposite to that it's about uh, emotional abuse um and control mm. so mm. what is what is coercive control
1: yeah it's a, it's a really good question it's, it's probably worthwhile um going back through the, to the history of coercive control and seeing where the concept first really was um, uh, investigated and elaborated upon and it really came out of the korean war interestingly enough um, there was a scientific researcher by the name of Albert Biderman back in the 1950s, and he was doing some study on American prisoners of war uh, with the Chinese communists and some of the strange behaviours that he witnessed um, when those um, prisoners of war were released. And often one of the really confounding things um, for, for the, um, the, the American side was how some of these prisoners of war, despite being prisoners were still uh, seemed to be enmeshed with or aligned with their captors. And so there's this really kind of strange behavior in that I mean they turned it brainwashing but there was a lot of work, research with which went around that. And what it really came to is that well, they came to understand that how that these prisoners of, of war had been treated, uh, the, the communists had used certain techniques and behavior behaviors which had, uh, um, perpetuated this um, uh, response in their victims, and it really focused on building dependency, debility, and then, debility and, and then dread. And, and to what you just said then, Mon, it wasn't so much violence itself. It was really the threat of violence, that, that kind of background um, static. You, you don't actually need to be violent at all. Uh, in, in terms of, you know, the bruises and all those type, you know, the actual physical stuff. It, it's, it's, it's more the threat of it that's so much uh, more debilitating to these people. Um, Bitterman's Bideman, research was picked up by someone, Diana Russell in the 80s, who looked at the same types of patterns of behaviour in domestic relationships, and that's where we see it kind of come into the family, the family aspect and the family unit. Is it probably, is, is it probably worth identifying just some of the... Um, patterns of behaviour that are representative of coercive control, do you think?
0: Well, just bring it back to Hannah Clark for a minute. So in that case, um, he, the husband in that case really followed a clear pattern. So he isolated her from her friends and family. Mm-hmm. Yep. He monitored her with GPS tracking. We see that more and more. Um, and obviously made various threats around what would happen if she was to leave. When she did leave, um, he basically kidnapped her daughter on Boxing Day in 2019 and refused to return her. Um, That caused her um, Hannah to have an intervention order. And I think it's really important to understand that intervention orders are a powerful tool in the advice we give clients in family law cases, but they, they really can't prevent something like this. They're not, um,
1: they're, they're not, they're not a force field.
0: <laughs> no. And um, the other aspect, I guess, that was important is what happened following the separation. So there was very much a tug of war in relation to the children um, through lawyers, through mediation, and ultimately um, further sort of abuse through that, that forum. Um, so um, it really is just about abuse of power. And mm-hmm. control. So, so the normal tactics we sort of see are, you know, positive reinforcement. So so praising the person, gifts and attention, and then negative reinforcement. So that gaslighting kind of aspect mm-hmm. that um, I, as at my age, don't really understand truly what gaslighting is. But Steph, you might be able to enlighten us. But <laughs> that is a strategy yeah. of coercive yeah. Actually, control. I yeah, I think Absolutely the gaslighting is, concept's
1: um, a really important one. It's one we hear very, very often these days. What, what do you, how would you define gaslighting, Steph? What would be you, your, your take on it?
2: I mean, I, to be honest with you, when we talk about family violence, one, one of the cases that bringing to mind, um, for me, interestingly enough, um, male victim, female perpetrator, gaslighting, my understanding in a family violence context, is this idea of making someone believe that they're the problem? Um, statements like, you know, you're paranoid, you're being crazy, um, it, it, it all is an extension of that removal of support, that isolation from friends and family. The people that we're seeing who come through and can complain about gaslighting behaviours to me is a real red flag because it's the type of behaviour that can very quickly lend itself to a real escalation. Um, that's one of my concerns as well. Um, Mom, we've had a couple in the last few years. For me, the other types of behaviours that are quite alarmist, uh, quite alarming, I should say, uh, threats of violence against pets. Um, things that, are, I mean, at, at mm. its core, it, it's an exercise of control and domination. I'm gonna take the things you love, and if you don't do what I say, um, th- these are the consequences. That, that, is that fear often is the case these people have not actually committed a physical mm. violence against mm. a person. But these people are the most in need of protection um, and often don't know where to turn. I think we're becoming better um, as family lawyers in identifying what constitutes family violence. Um, I think we can get a lot better in terms of counselling our own clients who, who may be the perpetrators who may not realise that they're committing family violence. But like you say, a system that requires people to come forward having to prove their case in an adversarial system. There are so many problems. I mean, we're talking today about coercive control in the context of criminal activity, and it's a really important conversation that has to happen. But as family lawyers, we're often faced with a prospect. That has serious implications in the family law setting. There's a huge amount of social research and social science that goes into um, protecting and facilitating the relationship between children and their parents. Often these parents, Um, if if they were taken to court, if they were charged and convicted of these family violence offences, there are really serious implications. My concern, and it's not to suggest that it's something that shouldn't happen, I think we should absolutely understand these implications. What happens then? Um, Take um, Hannah's tragic situation. Um, As a practitioner in this field, it's, it's one of those things that keeps you up at night. Would you have given that advice? Um, back, like you said earlier, and modern, I'm sorry to try and take you back to that really important and quite career-defining moment for you as well. You, you leave through your career and think to yourself, mm-hmm. what advice would I have given to this person who comes in and says, I've not been the victim of physical violence? What questions should we be asking? How do you protect these people? Um, and how do you give advice to people who may be perpetrating that type of behaviour on and the, these typically women? Um, how can we detect early and how can we prevent it? Mm. They're the conversations, um, which, which is not to shift blame onto different authorities um, or, or, or to, 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 to to point criticism um, at the legal system, but it's something that we all need to be educated about so that we mm. can do our jobs as well.
0: Can it's- I just jump in there, I just wanted to say that um, there is a recommendation for abusive process through the family law system as being part of the definition of family violence. Domestic violence advocates have actually pushed for that because there is, as we know, um, the ability when you have one person who may have been staying home looking at children, looking after children, one person who has the breadwinner income. um, Think about that dynamic in a court system, which is incredibly expensive, which um, allows everyone to have their say, which can allow multiple um, delays and adjournments all of those things can force someone to their knees in terms of um, mm-hmm. capitulating um, if there is um, a power imbalance. But the other thing I also wanted to talk about there, just to pick up on what you said, Steph, is the importance of everyone getting training in family violence. Because, um, you know, for me, uh, that that career-defining moment did sort of enliven um a passion for me to never let that happen again to anyone that I was working with. And so it did make me deep dive into this issue and, and understand it um, to the greatest extent I possibly can. But I don't know that people, everyone in our industry does the same. Um, and I think there's so much for us to learn. I'm, I'm still learning all the time. Um, 20 years on from that incident so um, you know looking for I think in the Hannah Clark scenario um, and certainly in my solar scenario what you're looking for is a, a pattern of behavior it does need to be almost a long-standing pattern of behavior it needs to be a bit of a cycle but there also needs to be an acceleration and red flags so you're looking at the the culmination of all of those things I think at once and that's when you're like potentially my client's in danger or my client and her children are in danger. Um, so the red flags can often be, and it's sometimes it's even down to the screening of clients. You know, we, we know that if there has been attempted strangulation in a physical altercation between parties, there's something like seven times more likely to be murdered. Um, threat to pets is another one. Um, violence during pregnancy is another one. So getting a really um, detailed historical account of, of violence, if it has occurred in that relationship, is important. But um, the other thing I guess I wanted to recognise is that clients aren't always the best people to advocate or to recognise that they're in a violent situation. And particularly because coercive control is so sinister and subtle um, in, in a way, um, it, it's totally um, It's totally expected that the client may not recognise it. If it's difficult for us to recognise it, it may be impossible for them to recognise. They're in the cycle of this relationship.
1: It it, it, it can be very, very hard to pick. And and imagine you're two police officers and you've been called out to attend a scene. And and I'll I'll, I'll use these persons for for the sake of the example, but you have a woman who is hysterical, can hardly speak, and you have a man who is relaxed, calm, Seems to be logical and rational. And the police are confronted with that particular situation. And it, it's going to be difficult to kind of, we just simply can't pinpoint what's actually happened here or even the history of, of what's led to this particular point. Um, so, someone who has been a victim of this type of coercive control um, could be utterly demoralized over a very, very long period of time. And so both the, you know, the authorities, the courts, the lawyers, we all have to kind of get across, as you said before, working out the right questions to ask, unpick what's actually happened here, and it's going to take time. And I and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of merit in introducing the laws, because even though it might be difficult to implement the laws, um, the the law is the right law to introduce, and the, and, the, and the framework and the understanding and the knowledge will then flow so that the law can be properly enforced. It's the same, it's the example of, you know, it used to be impossible that in the concept of uh, having rape in, in the terms of a marriage. How was anyone ever gonna prove that? Um, so it's the same kind of concept. It's gonna take time and patience and a lot of work from everyone um, to, to get this moving in the right direction. But a lot of training has to, has to go into our judges, to us. Uh, law Family report writers. Uh, a- a- absolutely. Yeah. Um, the psychologists that, re, you know, review family dynamics and provide um, recommendations to the courts. Um, yeah, a very, very complex complex process, but it's absolutely achievable.
0: So I guess that that brings us full circle, and that the reason um, we're wanting to talk about this today is that New South Wales is actually looking to bring this into um, the law as a criminal offence, um, and Queensland is dabbling in it as well. The big question is why Victoria isn't. I'm not sure what
2: the answer to that is. To to piggyback (sighs) off that, um, Monica, I I mean, I I wonder um, from from both of your respective experiences as as family lawyers predominantly, who we we do work in in both jurisdictions. Uh, This conversation comes up every few years. It seems to not get much traction. Is family violence not better placed, being dealt with by a Commonwealth jurisdiction such as the family court? Of course, we have the merger between the Federal Circuit Court and the family court that's effective from the 1st of September, 2021. So that's gonna be very soon. Um, Often uh, a lot has been made of um, people using intervention orders strategically. I think that's probably something that, 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 that's a term that's thrown around probably too flippantly. um, I think that we see very genuine applications for intervention orders being made and are not a great understanding. Um, In my experience as a practitioner in Victoria, it, it not only depends state to state, it depends on registry to registry. It depends mm-hmm. on the on a particular yeah. magistrate, you've got that day, it's so unpredictable. And I wonder whether there is an absolute need to be referring that type of power to the Commonwealth and having these family report writers and these specialist judges who are dealing with this every single day, being presiding over these types of applications. Because if they understand it better and they've got the full context of the relationship, I, I think surely they're better placed.
0: Um, I mean, I think it comes down to enforcement. So it's done through the state courts, so the state police can enforce those orders. Um, the federal police do have powers, and so does the Family Law Act has powers for intervention orders. Um, but it just doesn't make sense in terms of um, resources. So I think it would require an overhaul of a lot, um, yeah. a huge framework. Um, but but the intervention order, I think, has to be the absolute basic. Um, legal tool that we use. Um, And I sort of say to clients in a lot of cases where there is an escalation of behaviour and there is a fear or concern about harm, that this can sometimes be the shock, the shock to the system um, to make the other side sort of stop and pause and maybe reconsider and reset. Um, And in most cases, that's what it does, Mm -hmm. Um, but not in all cases. Um, so it's it's really important to to remember that that is the most important tool that we have at first instance, but we've got to look deeper into what's happening.
1: Yeah, I agree. No, and, and like like you say before, Monica, it's a it's a matter for us to inform ourselves as as practitioners in this space to, to be alert to the patterns, because it's very easy for us to, if we if we if we have a client who's presenting, is very difficult to deal with, is erratic, um, has scrambled instructions, is a bit all over the place. Um, Sometimes we really, where our knowledge um, and the value we add really comes into play is stepping back and trying to work out exactly what's going on, because sometimes it's not easy to actually get to the heart of what's actually happening. And and it, it might be easy just to kind of brush things off uh, and you never quite know what you're going to find. But I think as, as that's, that's what we need. That's why we do this job is because we ultimately want to help people and their families get to a better place. And sometimes it requires us to really roll up our sleeves and go above and beyond to actually see what's going on. Just because someone is difficult to deal with or well, they're erratic or whatever it might be, we need to be alive to the possibilities of where it is they've come from for a very long period of time uh, and try and work through that with them in the best way possible and give them as much as we can to protect them and their family but it's a it's a very very tricky tricky set of circumstances but hopefully- I think
0: yeah I think the approach we need to take is we need to do an initial risk assessment when you meet with a client but then you have to continue to do that risk assessment throughout mm-hmm. the matter and you have to continue <clears throat> to ask those screening questions about what's happening and and what that looks like and we have to be open to seeing the red flags because they are often there and they're often indisputable but you've got to look for them
1: oh look they're they're very very often there Uh, i think it's a sliding scale and there there are some people are you know um high level coercive controllers and there are probably others that dabble in coercive control behavior you know through, through their own anger or frustration or whatever it is so you get this whole kind of um, you know there's, a, there's the extreme end but there's a whole range in the middle as well uh, but again it's just kind of identifying those behaviours and just asking the right questions about that um, and putting in place the, the, the right understanding and, and, and pathways for the client and their families.
0: So, so what concerns I'll put to both of you what concerns would you have about it becoming a criminal offence course of control are there any cynics out there who might have something to say do you think and, and how would we answer that?
2: From, from my perspective, I think that it, it, it's reasonable to, have, to, to be asking those questions often. Um, we're trained as family lawyers to give advice in a particular way, um, having regard to, to the application of the law, but also what we know about our jurisdictions and what implications may flow from that. That advice might be in stark contrast to a criminal lawyer. Um, and I think that that is, it, once you tip over to a criminal jurisdiction, um, making concessions on behalf of clients, conceding applications for an intervention order, that can have really serious impacts on mm. someone's employment prospects, um, on someone's criminal record. All of those things can have absolutely impact someone's day-to-day life. So I, think, I, I don't think that there's reason to, to, to steer away from it. I think that the protection of victims of family violence is paramount. Um, I wanna make that clear. But I think that education for us as practitioners, we need to change the way we practice as well. Um, It's not that straightforward. So my my reservations uh, are are not about protecting um, perpetrators, but ensuring the system is identifying those who are in need and stopping it. I mean, the whole concept of an intervention order in a civil jurisdiction um, is exactly that. That intervention, like you said earlier, um, often that is the defining moment. And that is, that is successful in achieving the desired outcome, not always. And that's what's really tricky um, because you're having to balance those two things. So for, for me, my primary concern about um, uh, criminal conduct arising from family violence or coercive control is that you could get caught up in a system where people are stuck in the core system for years, having to try to clear their name, for lack of a better term,
1: um, and, and what that might do for their lives. Yeah, it's gonna have some hard hitting implications for families. Um, I, I certainly agree with that, but the, but the whole the whole thrust of it, and I think ultimately, this is where I, I fall Monica on that question, is that you are trying to change these very, very insidious behaviors uh, in the family context. You are um, going right back to basics to try and stop um, these horrendous murders and, and cases that we see from time to time. Um, and so, yeah, you, you are going to. I think I agree with you, Steph. It's going to be it's going to be a difficult road. It's not going to be easy at all. And there's going to be a whole body of learning that comes with the practical application. But I think ultimately, what you are trying to deter behaviours here, and you want potential. I mean, this this is an education piece for society as a whole. It it starts in our schools, even in terms of how, what's appropriate behaviour and how to how to treat a partner, or how to how to be respectful for someone important in your life. So it goes right back to that kind of level and, and, and the education and upbringing you've had and the family values and all that stuff. It's very complex. Um, so I agree it'll be very difficult, but I think um, the, if you wanna fundamentally change some of these uh, behaviors that we see and um, that lead to these horrendous crimes and which have very, very far reaching implications um, across the family, the, in the community as whole, you, you have to take it back to this level. So it's not going to happen. It's going to it's going to be a detailed process. Uh, and it will. I think that for some people they'll be, will be shy away from it because it'll be more painful to go through. It's, a, it's an age old thing with, a, I guess, with a, a rape b- victim. It's, it's actually really, really hard to come forward and then go through this horrendous process of per- persecuting the, um, the, the perpetrator or, or, or um, the person who's committed the, the crime. So that that you're right that 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 in itself would be horrendous. Uh, yeah, the goal, so it, it's the, a difficult one.
0: The goal is deterrence, and I think um, that's the most important message. But I think the reality is proving coercive control will be a real challenge. Agree. Um, and you might find only extreme cases will be will fall under that banner in terms of being charged anyway.
1: But the fact that it, but the fact that it exists, uh, and there's education that can that can flow from that. I think that in and of itself uh, is a reason to have it, irrespective of anything else.
0: And and I'll just finish up by saying that, you know, it is in um, a criminal offence in England and Wales and also in Scotland. And what seems to have come with that is just a total re-education of the police force and the, the court system around coercive control, which can only be a positive thing. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for, um, I'm sure we could talk about this all day. I certainly could. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Uh, Stay tuned for our next uh, Family Law Podcast. Thanks.
1: Cheers, folks.